the Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Well, Molly, we're back. Paul and Stuart aren't here tonight, but I don't think we needed them. I think we did just fine without them. Uh, this is the Curbsiders. We're going to be talking about PCOS. And with me is a great Dr. Molly Hoyblind. Happy to be here. Okay, Molly. So I guess I should remind them, since Paul's not here, this is an internal medicine podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring them clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. There will be no bad puns tonight. So, Molly, tell them about our wonderful guest and what and a little more about the episode. Yeah, I'm excited that we got to cover polycystic ovary syndrome or PCOS tonight. Um, We had a wonderful guest, Dr. Catherine Sharif, and uh, she really helped us talk about what to look for when patients present to the clinic with symptoms of PCOS, clinical exam findings that are really pertinent to look for, a lab workup that's very straightforward, and then she helped us review some basic medications to treat PCOS. And so Dr. Catherine Sharif is a professor and vice chair of academic affairs in the Department of Medicine at Thomas Jefferson University. She's a graduate of the Medical College of Pennsylvania, where she completed her residency and chief residency in 1995. She also completed a clinical fellowship in medicine and human rights from Columbia University. Dr. Sharif leads the practice at Jefferson Women's Primary Care. Dr. Sharif is also a leading expert on polycystic ovary syndrome, having established the country's first academic program for PCOS, co-founded with Dr. Shahab Minassian in 2000. Dr. Sharif has written and lectured widely on nutrition, the role of omega-3 fats in health and disease, aging, telomeres, and supplements, as well as testosterone replacement for men, hormone replacement for women, and heart disease in women and human rights. All right, so without further ado, here is our conversation with Dr. Catherine Sharif. Catherine, we've been trying to do this uh, literally for a long time. We've had a couple of false starts. Finally, we're getting it together. We're so excited to talk with you and for the audience to hear a little bit about you. So can you tell them your one-liner? Sure. My name is Catherine Sharif, and one of my favorite things is to go on bike trips, and I've been all over the world on bike trips. So... In a in an, a recording that will never air, I asked you what kind of bike trips because I was picturing you on like a a like chopper like riding across Asia for some reason. So tell what kind of bike trips are these that you're taking? These are bike trips for sedentary middle aged people. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're that biking. I mean, that's your def- <laughs> by definition, you're not sedentary. So give yourself some credit there. Okay. Uh, what was your most recent one that you went on that was a good good time? Um, it was on the the back roads of uh, Belize, um, dirt roads. Um, it was amazing. The emerald green parakeets followed us as a flock and flew cool. really fast. They would stop when we stopped, take off when we went. Um, it was so beautiful. That's amazing. That sounds wonderful. Uh-huh. Yeah, and like pigs the size of a VW, <laughs> roaming through the forest. Just wild. want to stay away from those, but wild. Yeah. 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 Okay. That sounds Scary. that sounds awesome. So hopefully, uh, hopefully, <laughs> some of our listeners will be inspired to do such trips. Molly, what else should we ask about? 
Yeah. Do you have a book recommendation that you'd want to share with us? Either something that you think is good for people in medicine or just in general, a book that that you've really liked? Um, The best book I've read in a very long time is a book by B.J. Miller and um, a psychologist named Shoshana. I forgot her last name. And it's called A Beginner's Guide to the End. And it's this hospice physician and psychologist who give practical advice about how to face death and how to prepare emotionally, physically, financially, spiritually. And they look at it head on and it's not gruesome. And it's something I wish I had read in medical school to prepare me. That's a great recommendation. Have, yeah. I haven't checked that one out, but there there is a great literature that's growing around that topic. And I'll look into that. Catherine, something that we like to ask on the show is um, because, you know, we, we tell people about your bio. They're so intimidated by how great our guests are. But we like to, for guests to share something they've struggled with or some some failure they've had along the way and how did how did they learn from that? Maybe maybe a failure that you turned into some a learning experience or growing experience. Um, I've had so many. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> when I first started out, and patients would say, "You're so great. You're great. You're the greatest doctor I ever had," and I'd be like, "Wow, that's just great." <laughs> and 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 I like your hair. They would say. And um, what I learned over time, uh, the, you know, I was, I was really flattered. What I learned over time is that, um, is how some patients split and how patients come to us with baggage and that, um, if someone's going to start complimenting me and it feels like it's excessive or before they even know me, I know that later on they're going to knock me down and they're going to be a problem. And there's a problem with boundaries and um, it took me a while to learn how to handle that. You know, so when people are like that, um, now I'm able to just push it out here. I push my boundaries out and you know, thank you very much and just file it away because there's going to be trouble later on. Oh, that's great. That's great. I feel like that's something that probably probably the listeners can relate to. They, they're probably like thinking of people in their lives that have maybe recently done that to them. <laughs> um, Okay. Yeah, I think that's a good communication one because we we deal with a lot of different personalities in medicine and get to be prepared. Molly, before we get on with the topic, did you want to give any kind of recommendations, book recommendations? Do you have a pick of the week? Um, Yeah, my pick of the week is um, an app called Overdrive that uh, lets you kind of sync multiple libraries together so that if you want to download audiobooks or other kinds of media online, you can kind of search multiple libraries at once. Um, so it's a nice right, nice resource to be able to get free media. Yeah, I think a lot of local libraries have that app and you can get you can get, like you said, all sorts of audio audiobooks or ebooks or or even I think movies and music on them. Mm-hmm. Let me remind you that our sponsor today is Primary Care Internal Medicine of Ithaca. They have a wonderful opportunity to join them as a primary care physician. In beautiful upstate New York, near the Finger Lakes, near wine country, this is a great practice. They have flexible hours. They are open to job sharing. You can take as much time as you need with your patients. You will become part of a close-knit community of medical professionals. All while living in a college town in upstate New York, it's a great place to raise a family and to practice medicine. If this sounds exciting to you, and it should sound exciting, then please email A.R. Costello, C-O-S-T-E-L-L-O 
at gmail.com to learn more about this opportunity. Well, I'm not going to give a pick this week because I, I want to get on to the case. And Molly, would you start us off with a case from Cashlack? Yeah, sure. So um, Carla's coming to us in our outpatient clinic at Cashlack. She's a 32-year-old woman, and she wants to talk about her irregular periods. She says that she probably had some irregular periods back in her teens, but then she's been on birth control pills for many years until a couple months ago she decided to stop them because she wasn't sexually active. She says in the past few months, her periods have been six to eight weeks apart. On exam, Carla has normal vitals. Her BMI is 26. She looks pretty healthy, and she has a moderate facial acne. So I wanted to start by just taking a step back and hoping you could define for us what polycystic ovary syndrome is. Uh, The definition of polycystic ovary syndrome has been controversial. So in the most coherent uh, definition, Um, came along in around 2003, and it's called the Rotterdam Criteria, and it was the European Society for Reproductive uh, Endocrinology and the American Society for uh, uh, Reproductive Medicine. And what they, the criteria they came up with are so straightforward. They said you should have at least two out of three things to meet the criteria for PCOS. And the three things are a history of irregular periods, uh, and that's irregular meaning irregular intervals, menstrual intervals. Number two, signs of hyperandrogenism or uh, serum levels of high androgens. Those are both criteria number two. And the third criterion is uh, polycystic ovaries, which have a very specific morphology that's different from your garden variety cyst. And to this day, um, their patients are told that they don't have PCOS because they don't have hair on their face, or they don't have PCOS because they're not fat, or they don't have PCOS because they don't have any cysts on their ovaries. And all of those are not necessary. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I think it was always like, that's what you're always, if, if you had like, I have a very poorly developed illness script for this. So, uh, you know, mine would have been like a, a patient who's overweight with cysts on their ovaries and, and like, and probably hirsutism. And that's, right. you know, but I, I had no idea that there was like these specific criteria. And then they, that because the criteria are the way that they are, it could look like a couple different clinical, clinical pictures, right? Let's, Let's talk a little bit about um, when you are seeing patients with this, like what is the most common, I was, Molly and I were debating this uh, like in pre-recording about like what are, what do actually people like come and complain of with this? What's the most common complaint? Because I thought maybe it was infertility or maybe it was the, maybe it was the, the problems with like hair growing in places that was not desired. Sure. So it depends on whom you're seeing. So patients do not come to internists or family medicine physicians and say, I can't get pregnant. Okay. And they know that belongs to the other doctor, you know, the, the vagina doctor. (laughs) And, uh, they, uh, so as an internist, uh, what they'll say is, um, that their periods are not coming on time. Um, or they may say I've had, uh, you know, so much hair on my face, and I was told that's because I'm uh, substitute a certain ethnic group. 
and um, they uh, are often overweight. Over- overweight is another common complaint and a complete inability to lose weight no matter what. And they're 24 years old and it shouldn't be that difficult when you're 24 like that. So, and some women, uh, let's say Asian women, uh, I've had uh, Japanese, Chinese and Korean women come to me. They'll have a testosterone through the roof and they've been told that uh, they don't have PCOS because they don't have any hair on their face. And I say to them, does your husband have any hair on your face, on his face? No. So you need to have androgen receptors. And then in some cultures, you, you always have androgen receptors on your face. So like in my family, if you don't have a mustache, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> okay. So the, and the hair can grow in multiple places too, right? It's not like there's, I think, cause the, the criteria from when I was reading, they have that, the, so I can't remember the epidemic. Galway score. Yeah. It's useless. Oh, it's useless. Right. So clinically, <laughs> clinically it's not, it's like probably for research purposes, but there's multiple areas, right. Of, of hair growth that are like chest, belly, things yeah. like that. They were, they were mentioned. Um, oh, absolutely. And then sometimes, um, like, hair that is in the midline is more related to androgens and hair. So women will say, well, I have hair around my nipples. That's very common. And that's not due to high testosterone. But if you have one spiky hair here on your chest, that looks way too spiky, that is an androgen hair. And, um, and that's why um, uh, the happy trail is, in midline, so that'll be much more pronounced. And some women whose androgens are so high, they have more of a male escutcheon, uh, the the pattern, and they'll have hair growing on the inside of the thighs or going down the thighs. That's just too much for your a typical girl. Yeah, the, 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 they call this in the when you're reading these articles, they say terminal hair, which I had to look up because I had no rem- remembrance for that. But they just said it's it's like thicker and coarser type hair. Anywhere else that you that people commonly complain of hair other than the midline or or the face? Yeah, so the face is is uh, very obvious, but they um, women in general do not get hair on their upper arms. So it may be just below the shoulder. Um, they may ha- have hair in their upper back. Lots of people have hair in their lower back, and it tends to be softer. But if it's really spiky, as you say, terminal hairs then it's from androgens. But I'll tell you, uh, that is a very specific sign, is uh, hair, uh, terminal hairs on the upper arms near the shoulders. Okay. Do you make a specific effort to really ask your patients about this since so many of them are removing the hair on their own? Yes, um, because they might be very smooth and then they might not say it right away and then they'll say, well, you know, I shaved or... I did laser. I've done it about 88 times and it's starting to take. Um, So, and then some people, when they come in, they will let their hair, they won't remove the hair so you can see what it's like at its worst. And what about alopecia or hair loss changes? Alopecia is common. Um, Not so much in African-American women, um, but in white women and Asian women, it's more common. And it alopecia is diffuse. And so you look at someone and you can see too much of their scalp, uh, just looking at them directly. And sometimes what 
what patients have read online, they think they should have alopecia, alopecia areata, and it isn't that. Um, they, you know, you can ask them, um, so ha- are you losing hair? And they say, yeah, I have so much hair um, in the bathtub when I wash my hair. But that's very different. You're supposed to lose a lot of hair. Um, it's very different from looking at someone and seeing their scalp. So what I tell them to do is make a part and uh, pull your hair to the sides and see, we can measure in millimeters how many, how much hair, uh Uh, how big the part is. But the thing is, you know, I don't even try to quantify it anymore because women know their hair. You know, they're very, we're socialized to really watch our hair. And uh, after all these years of seeing women with PCOS, the number one distressing symptom is alopecia. Number one, two, and three. That's before Mm. being overweight and other problems. Because you can remove hair, but our hair is is so socially uh, significant. I was I was going to ask: Is this is the alopecia areata? That's more patchy hair loss, and you're saying this is just a more diffuse hair loss where you can see a lot of the scalp. And then, do yeah. they also get the like receding hairline like men get, like uh, men in their late thirties, like myself, uh, on the sides? Just like yours. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it is great, isn't it? Um, so your forehead's getting bigger. Not all women have that pattern, but many do. Okay. And that might even be young women, like in their 20s? Oh, even in their teens, yeah. Okay. It's heartbreaking. Another caveat is that um, some physicians will say, oh, you're not losing hair. It looks, it looks fine. Don't, and I would say, don't ever say that to a woman because women know their hair and don't discount it. Um, and... Uh, and, and again, everything is relative and um, she may have hair loss that's uh, she may have started out with a, a lot more hair and, and now she just looks like everybody else. You know, so women, you know, the thing is, if you start discounting things with patients, you're going to lose their trust. So both mm. the, the terminal hair, like excess terminal hair growth or hirsutism and the alopecia are hyperandrogenic are parts of the hyperandrogenism part of this. So we're going to move on a little bit and talk a little bit more about the case with Carla where she's also having uh, oligomenorrhea. I'm probably saying that wrong. That's uh, that's kind of my thing. And then uh, she's also she also has acne. And uh, what testing might we think about doing for her, like if she's coming to us with some of these complaints? Well, before we do that, can I talk about the acne a little? Yeah, absolutely. Please. Okay. So... If you have a patient who has been on uh, Accutane in her teens or 20s, um, I will bet you anything that she has high androgens. I have almost never seen anyone in 25 years who took Accutane who didn't have PCOS. And so when I speak to dermatologists, I want to educate them about that. So they refer to us. I've had patients who've been on Accutane seven times. Women don't get acne in general. They don't get it on their upper arms. They can, you can get one zit on your chest if you're a woman, but not a crop. And the same thing for your butt. I, that is, that is, I'm sure you're helping a lot of people by saying this because (laughs) I never, I had never made the connection between the two. 
Um, you know, like that that kind of statement. Uh, wow. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that so acne also, and you're saying the, the the pattern that you just gave us that should really make us think about PCOS. Is there anything else on our exam or on our history that we would go to before we start to think about like what what is the rest of the workup going to be? Yes. Um, so surprisingly, um, a lot of women have hydradenitis separativa, and um, I am certain it's fueled by androgens. I don't think I have ever seen HS in anyone who didn't have PCOS again. Um, so if you don't ask them about boils in, you know, the unmentionable places, they're probably not going to mention them. So um, I ask them, I don't say, have you had hydradenitis? I say, um, have you ever had boils that just stuck around for months or even years? And they'll say, yes. And um, they'll say on my breasts, under my breasts, on my abdomen, armpits, and then uh, in the groin. And uh, it's embarrassing. And it makes them think about hygiene. They, so you have to ask. That's interesting. I hadn't heard that connection. Is there literature kind of into the basis for that? But okay. I have to say, I've seen a lot of people in 25 years. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. Okay. So what's our, what's our next step for Carla? She's having, like I said, irregular periods plus the hyperandrogen symptoms, the acne and the hair problems. Okay. Yeah. So when she says irregular periods, uh, what some people mean by that is that uh, the bleeding is very heavy. It's not regular as in normal. Mm-hmm. And you have to say, okay, wait, do your periods come? Do they come every month? Yeah. And what do you mean? Yeah, they're regular every month. What do you mean by that? Well, it becomes on like the 1st of February, and then it'll come like March 25th. Um, so, you know, I'm hitting every month and that's what they mean. So they're not aware. Um, so it, it just, uh, it's important to quantify that because of the word regular. So the tests, if you're taking the boards, um, the, the, what you would do at this point with someone whose periods don't come every month is get a pregnancy test. If you're in an outpatient practice, you're not going to get a pregnancy test, um, on someone with a long history of irregular periods, um, but you will check a prolactin, you check a TSH. Uh, those are the two most important things. And uh, you're not gonna find a prolactinoma very often, but you, you need to not miss it. Now, interestingly, um, women with PCOS have slightly elevated prolactins, so you don't need to get excited. So if, if 20, up to 20 is the normal for a serum prolactin, they can be 25, 40, 50, but it's not 100. And so repeat the value. To this day, I have never had a patient who had irregular menstrual intervals because of hypothyroidism. But I always check the TSH anyway, and also it is on the boards. So maybe in the old days, because they didn't have a TSH before we went into practice, but um it is important to check because there's a strong association between PCOS and uh, hypothyroidism. And then this other one that they mention when you read about this, this non-classic um, adrenal hyperplasia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Is that something you also test for 
Is that where is that like a different round of testing for you? Oh no, not at all. I actually pick up a lot. <laughs> I never intended to do this. You know, I was uh, <laughs> I was studying diabetes, but um, there are so many women walking around there, uh, walking around out there with non-classical congenital adrenal hyperplasia. So instead of like being born and having genitals that may be a little confusing. Um, these women, that's classical congenital adrenal hyperplasia. These women uh, manifest after puberty. But if you go back and you ask them or their mom, um, how, you know, when did she get her breasts? Oh, age eight. And I'll ask women, do you think your clitoris is a little larger than the average girl? And after they stop screaming, they'll say, yeah, you know, I think it is. Or a mom and a daughter will pop up and say, it is so big, but nobody ever said anything. So it's not classical, but things grew after puberty. So the way the classic test for checking for congenital adrenal hyperplasia is, the, as you know, the 17 alpha hydroxyprogesterone. So I always check that. And it's, um, it's often so negative. It's, um, I don't even know if it's the right test. So we have a DNA test uh, by the commercial labs um, to look at 21 hydroxylase. And that's the enzyme, as you know, that is most commonly mutated and causes problems. And it causes an elevation of 17 alpha hydroxyprogesterone. But so often I'll get the DNA test, especially if someone is Greek, Italian, Jewish, Hispanic, and they're shorter than their mother, right? So they have more testosterone, they fuse sooner. They have tiny hands, uh, they have broad shoulders and a strong jawline. Those are secondary sex characteristics for men. And so I get the DNA test and the 17-alpha-hydroxyprogesterone is a joke, but the DNA test is positive. Yeah, and that okay. test, it seemed like it was a little difficult because they're like, you got to send it in the early something phase, right. follicular. So it, yeah. it seemed like I it was a specific phase of the cycle that they wanted right. you to send it. Exactly. It, is it a big expense for the patient to to send the DNA test that you're talking about? No one's ever been charged for it. Okay. So you, you, you kind of provide your clinical documentation. I think this patient, you know, this patient has hyperandrogenism and, and, and then you're testing for 21-hydroxylase uh, deficiency. Right. Okay. Right. And then like if the insurance company gives the patient um, any flack, and this hasn't happened in a while... Um, I'll just call them up and say, you are a bunch of racists. <laughs> She's Greek. How dare you? And um, that usually shuts them up. <laughs> hey, wow. A lot of great tips tonight. <laughs> I know. I have not tried that on my prior apps. <laughs> or peer-to-peers. <laughs> and that usually gets it covered. <laughs> okay. All right. So we're doing, to recap, we're doing uh, prolactin and rule out hyperprolactinemia, uh, thyroid, and then we're also checking the 17-hydroxyprogesterone, which is probably going to be hilariously low. Uh, but then we might we should, might check the DNA test anyway if we're if we're suspicious because we could find this non non congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Non classical. Non classical. Sorry, non classical. Right. Yeah. And remember, Greek, Italian, Jewish and uh, Hispanic or Spanish descent. Okay. It's much more common. 
What about androgen testing in general, just like testing testosterone, free testosterone? How do you do that? And do, do you test sex hormone binding globulin as well? I, I, I had read that some people do that to kind of calculate things. Yeah, well, I don't see the utility of um, checking SHBG, and I published a paper on it in 1998. So I don't, it doesn't do anything for, it doesn't change anything. Okay. Um, let me remind you, we cannot measure sex hormones if you're taking sex hormones or analogs. Um, so please don't check the sex hormones while you're on the birth control pill, or if you have that thingy in your arm, or if you have a Marina IUD, uh, or you're on depo. Um, so, okay. So what I do is measure, uh, total testosterone, free testosterone and DHEA sulfate, not DHEA by itself, but DHEA sulfate, which is stable, uh, over several days and is more accurate. And the, um, testosterone used to be the testosterone assays from the commercial labs used to be more accurate. And now they just all come back. Everybody's got a, like a testosterone, a total testosterone of 20, which is like postmenopausal. So that's why I, because the assays are so bad and uh, it, it, over the years, people have been like, oh, well, make sure you measure the free and not the total or vice versa. Forget it. So if they go to a hospital lab, the hospital, they have interesting equipment because there's like researchers there or they invested in, you know, um, uh, chromatography and they often come back with the elevated testosterone. So anyway, look at the DHEA sulfate and do completely disregard the reference range for DHEA sulfate. And the reason is you can get a, re if you looked right now, you'd see a reference range maybe of 45 to, you know, 352, which is like everybody in the world. <laughs> and um, it's stupid. So um, what I have found over the years, yeah, so people, you know, they come, somebody will be like 400, their DHEA sulfate. If I had a DHEA sulfate of 400, I have a beard. <laughs> and um, they, uh, they'll be told, well, you're borderline high on the DHEA sulfate and then your <laughs> testosterone's low so you don't have PCOS, right? They can't have a kid and uh, they're bald. So most women, which it doesn't, this, ref remember, most reference ranges are not adjusted for sex or for age or uh, the phase you are in life. So most women have a DHEA sulfate of 100 and it's almost invariable. It is 100 anytime during your cycle. Most women with PCOS are 200 to three or 400, most. And there's almost nobody between 100 and 200. So that's relatively easy. And then some people are four, five, six, 700. Of course, you should be checking for congenital adrenal hyperplasia. And, you know, you have to wonder, is this coming from the adrenal glands? But, you know, if you have hyperandrogenemic symptoms, you don't have to check the androgens. But I often, I'm, I'm very curious and my patients are very curious and they want to know. And that's why we measure them. Now, there's one more hormone that I can get now. It used to be a research tool. Um, you, I'm sure you read about it, anti-malarian hormone, mm -hmm. AMH, and it tells us what uh, the ovarian reserve is. And um, even if you're on the birth control pill, it should not be affected 
the AMH should not be affected. What we want is an AMH over one. If it's over one, you probably don't have premature ovarian failure because one of the things we sometimes have to rule out is premature ovarian failure, which is now called uh, ovarian insufficiency. And you can have you can have periods, but they're starting to stutter out. And so you miss this, you miss that. And maybe somebody thinks it's PCOS. So, so anyway, we have to be attuned to that. Just because someone has periods doesn't mean they don't have premature ovarian failure. If you check an AMH, it'll be under one. Um, so most women, of course, are over one. And then an interesting thing about women with PCOS, theirs can be sky high. So instead of being two, three, four, five, they are 15, 20, that's how high their AMH is. Um, and it just goes to show you that there's nothing wrong with the ovaries. The ovaries are just responding. Their ovaries actually work beautifully and the follicles want to mature, but they can't in the environment of too many androgens. Can you explain a little bit more about the anti, uh, the AMH? I, I, can't, I just, I don't remember exactly what it does and like, how does that signify, how does a high level factor into to PCOS? Okay, so um, it's secreted by the follicles and that's why it can tell you uh, these immature follicles, that's why it can tell you what ovarian reserve is. Like, you know, you have a ton of stuff. So, okay, so thing is, why would it be higher in PCOS? Because everybody's been sleeping in the environment of high testosterone and not firing. And we're not losing eggs every month or losing follicles every month. And there isn't all that uh, atresia. And then their, their ovaries are bigger. Um, many of those follicles that could not become the egg of the month and they couldn't die, they are the ones that just sit there. They have fluid in them. Uh, they may, they're usually no more than 10 to 12 millimeters on the periphery of the ovary, of course, string of pearls. And so you've got all these AMH secreting follicles. Okay, great. Thank you for explaining that. Is there any need to check LH or FSH? Um, no. I mean, I did things by the book a long time ago, and uh, I'm so uninterested in the LH and FSH. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate your candor. That's reassuring to hear, yes. <laughs> yeah, what a yawn. Yeah. But, you know, I do it now like if patients ask me to. And, okay, well, but it's we were, not part of your standard. And and talking about the AMH, I, from what I was reading, the, the measuring, you getting an ultrasound is not necessarily part of it anymore. So do you do that instead of the ultrasound? Because that kind of can tell you what's going on with the follicles by getting the AMH rather than getting like a transvaginal ultrasound and trying to count like how many follicles the patient has? Well, I suppose it depends on what field you're in. Mm -hmm. Um so many gynecologists order ultrasounds. Um, I personally don't care about follicles, how many they are. Um, and there's a whole branch of PCOS where people are saying, this is the size, this is the behavior. Um, we can predict such and such from the morphology and so on and so forth. I, I don't care. You know, we can get people pregnant um, very easily with the right treatment. And also, I don't like young women who have not had sexual intercourse. I don't want them to have um, a, a pelvic ultrasound. It's really icky. You know, they call it the probe. Yeah, yeah. Well, that I, it's, it all sounds very practical the way that you're approaching this. That's what we that's what we like on the show. So I I appreciate that. So. 
to to kind of recap what we've done here so far um, and and see if there's anything left for the diagnosis because I do want to spend the rest of our time talking about a little bit of the treatment. So we said we're looking for signs of hyperandrogenism. Hyperandrogenism, that's a hard word to say. So that could be uh, extra, extra hair growth. That could be acne. That could be alopecia, especially of the scalp, like you said. And then we're going to uh, ask them about their periods. Are they irregular? And mm-hmm. then make sure when be really specific, like not not just you have one every month, but is it is it regular every month? Mm-hmm. And then we were going to do some of the lab tests that we've been talking about, the uh, prolactin TSH, 17-hydroxyprogesterone, or the DNA test for 21-hydroxylase deficiency. And then we might check an AMH to see what's going on with the follicles, with the, uh, follicles in the ovary. Anything that I'm missing that you do as part of your like your initial diagnostic workup? Sure. So about 20% of my patients with PCOS are slender. Um, but if you ask, they'll say, yes, I've always had this little pouch. I have this little tummy. It never goes away no matter what. And that's their insulin resistance. And what I can't figure out with the pathophysiology of PCOS is why some people are slender. But, you know, it's multifactorial and so many genes go into it. There's many types of at least presentations of PCOS. Uh, One thing is to look at, um, you know, the jawline and um, and see if they have the secondary sex characteristics like broad shoulders Um, and also look for acanthosis nigricans. And on people who have lighter skin, it's going to look silvery or a little bit dirty on the elbows, um, maybe very light brown across the knuckles, the skin will be rough, and uh, they may not notice it and reassure them that it is reversible and that when your insulin levels go down, all this is going to straighten out if it's a little dark in the groin or the axilla. If your skin is dark, it's obvious it's much easier to see. And again, I reassure people that that's going to go away. They'll often have skin tags because um, insulin is a growth hormone. Their insulin levels are very high. And so they'll have numerous skin tags in the axilla or on the neck, people who are prone to getting those. And the upper arms, they often have red bumps, that little red, rough red bumps that are called um, keratosis pilari or follicular keratitis. And again, that's promoted by insulin. Those are all great physical exam, exam things to, to look for. You started to talk about this a little bit with saying that the ovaries are fine and it's more about the hyperandrogenism and then sort of bringing in the, the hyperinsulinemia. What's the current thinking about what is driving all of this or what's the, the baseline problem that's creating PCOS? Well, there's two schools of thought. One is that the hypothalamus is causing the pituitary to cause excess luteinizing hormone over follicle stimulating hormone, which you know is in the blood test uh, when you when you check the blood test, um, and then the luteinizing hormones will produce more androgens, um, and they the androgens inhibit folliculogenesis. So that's one branch. Um, the part that makes more sense to me is that insulin is the underlying problem. And insulin directly stimulates the um, fecal cells in the ovary to produce too many androgens. It also goes to the hypothalamus 
and, and it increases the pulses of gonadotropin releasing hormone, both the amplitude and the frequency. And that's what makes the pituitary produce too much LH. And then finally, so it hits the hypothalamus, the insulin hits the uh, ovary. And then finally, as you know, it decreases sex hormone binding globulin and releases uh, free testosterone, again, which inhibits folliculogenesis. So they could both be true. Um, but I, uh, I guess because I'm an internist, I'm on the, uh, I'm on the insulin side. It's controversial. Yeah, everybody thinks they're right, right? <laughs> of course. And we're going to talk about it. One one theme that I noticed that was a little bit surprising to me, and you, you already mentioned this, you said some of the patients are actually slender. It's not like this is like over. I, I think this is, you know, that that the tendency is to just like anybody with a weight problem to blame it to blame it on them or to blame the weight problem for every problem every medical problem the patient has but it sounds like there's more than just weight to to PCOS and that that probably doesn't explain the even even all the insulin problems if if it if insulin's the main problem um does that explain all the problems i guess i should ask you that right um, it is confusing um the way i conceptualize it is that Okay, in most people, they're resistant to insulin, so they produce very high levels of insulin to get the job done. The insulin, in turn, tells the ovaries to produce androgens. And since insulin is a growth hormone, it makes you gain weight, especially in the middle. And the androgens, unfortunately, tell adipocytes to multiply. So you're gaining weight from two directions. So the women who are not uh, overweight. And I mean, some of them are strikingly slender. What I wonder is if on their ovaries, they have too many insulin receptors. So when they produce any amount of insulin, it stimulates the ovaries to produce too many antigens. Yeah. I know it's not that simple, but that's how I conceptualize it. If that's complex, how do you describe kind of the whole disease to patients or the whole syndrome to patients when you're first diagnosing them? Uh, these are long visits. <laughs> okay. Well, what, maybe a short version. <laughs> yeah. So what I say is, um, you know, I ask them how much they've read. Some have read a lot, some none. And I say, okay, let's review the physiology because I want you to understand why I'm going to offer you certain medications. Because sometimes they'll say, someone threw metformin at me and I just had no idea. And they said, just take it. And um, I, because if they understand, then uh, they can make an intelligent decision about their body. So I say, uh, normally when you eat, you produce a little bit of insulin and that insulin um, breaks down. Let's say you ate a cookie and it broke down to sugar, fats and protein. And they can't, those nutrients cannot get into the cells unless insulin opens the door. Now, when you're resistant to insulin and you eat the same cookie, now this much insulin won't work to metab to open the door to the cells. And um, the pancreas says, hmm, uh, the cells are hungry. Uh, this cookie is going around and around, but it's not in the cells. I need to release more insulin to open the door to the cells because the, the cells are resisting me. And it goes higher and higher and higher. And finally, you overwhelm the cells, you open the door, and the nutrients go in. However, 
it's you have been craving food, you're eating more, you, you feel like you're hungry, and this is a hormonal problem. You may feel very tired all the time, because you're not all day long, you're not metabolizing efficiently. And then I'll say, you know, and that insulin not only makes you gain weight, and I describe it weight in the middle, but it goes over to your ovary and tells the ovary start making a lot of testosterone. And then your ovaries are just fine. You're probably not going to have any problems having children. But when you produce all this testosterone, uh, this is what happens. You don't have an egg of the month. Mm -hmm. And that helps. And then from there, we can move on to, should we do the pill? Should we do metformin? And so on. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, it's still, I mean, it's, it is, it is a complicated, as you said, it's complicated and it's, it's still a little bit controversial, but it's just, it's got to be hard for patients to understand because I'm sure, uh, I know I was like trying to review all the physiology, uh, you know, to prepare just to be able to interview you about this. So I can imagine it's hard for patients to, they, I'm sure they spend time reading about it or spend time and eventually, eventually they'll, they'll get it. And I think based on the name and the fact that a lot of women do come to care because of menstrual irregularities or infertility, it becomes very focused on the ovaries and less focused on the insulin resistance and the metabolic syndrome. And um, I, I like kind of the way you take it back and sort of make it about the whole metabolism and, and their whole health. How do you counsel patients about like the long-term risks? Do you do it at the same time that you're explaining to them what this is? Like, do you talk to them about some of the metabolic risks over the long term? Yes. Um, if they bring their blood tests with them from somewhere else, um, I'll review the blood test and say, see here, your these are the most important liver function tests, and they're abnormal. And that tells me that your insulin is high, and that means uh, you've been putting fat into your liver, which is harmful to your liver, but it is reversible. Okay. And then that's if they bring their labs. If they don't, I say, this is what we're going to do. Because um, when you have high insulin and high testosterone, you can be at high risk for heart disease or develop diabetes. We are going to check a three-month sugar, and we will do that every year. We are going to check your lipid profile and your uh, liver function tests. Because uh, when I started out in 1995, nobody had fatty liver. The only people who had abnormal LFTs were drinkers or people with hep C, and we just called it non-A, non-B, but it is, it is astonishing how many people have fatty liver now. Yeah, yeah it's so like one they, in three adults, I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, ouch, you know? So um, we're going to, uh, so I say this is, this is what we're going to check, and then... Um, and if these, if these numbers, we'll go over everything. And I have telemedicine visits afterwards, usually. And then, um, and then we're going to talk about how to, how to deal with each one. Okay. And they get better. Yeah. And it's not, from, from what I was reading, it's not exactly clear if, and maybe it's because it's such a long lead time or something, but it's not exactly clear, right, if it definitely increases like heart attack and strokes. Right. Okay. It isn't clear. And that's because uh, no one lived long enough to follow a 13-year-old. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, that's, that makes sense. Yeah. So this does, is, and, and I guess you're bringing up another point there. Does this seem to start in, in like, you know, after puberty? Is that when this seems to start and then they just have it lifelong? 
Whereas this, can women p- get this in their twenties or thirties, or you know, as a new, as it's a new unusual. onset? It's unusual. Um, what I have seen, uh, the exception in their twenties and thirties is, for example, uh, someone was on the pill since age fourteen. Either her periods uh, were painful, or the intervals were irregular. So she went on the birth control pill. She goes off ten years later, like the case we were talking about, and. Um, her periods are irregular and the doctor says to her, well, that's because you were on the pill for so many years. Oh, and that's not true. If you go off the pill, you, pretty much you start ovulating right away. And if you don't, it has nothing to do with the duration of being on the pill. So, and then the other, so that's where we, it's just masked. The other time it's unmasked uh, often. Um, I mean, it's not often, but when it's happened, it seemed to be, um, someone became pregnant and pregnancy is a very insulin resistant state. And then they develop gestational diabetes, whatever they deliver. And now all hell breaks loose. Uh, after the baby's born, they have a different body than before. I've also seen women go the other way where they had PCOS for many years, got pregnant. And then after the baby, they were like, oh, my PCOS went away. Excellent. It's just <laughs> anecdotal. I don't know what, <laughs> what happened to them. but Yeah, I'm all for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's. I think we have a little bit of time left. I want you to tell us how do you counsel? Uh, how do you approach the treatment for a patient like like Carla, who we've been talking about? She's got a regular um, menstrual regularity, and then she's also got. Let's say she has some insulin resistance, and and then she's got the hyperandrogenism. So, what what should we do for her? So, I really try to make this a partnership, and. Um, Uh, try not to be paternalistic about it. So um, since alopecia is the most distressing symptom, if someone has alopecia or just terrible acne um, or, or even terrible hirsutism, I'll say, are you interested in taking the pill? Do you need contraception? Um, And some people flatly do not want the pill and others are ambivalent. There is nothing, I have seen nothing better for terrible, those terrible symptoms, like if they are the extreme, nothing's better than the pill, but I'm not a huge fan of the pill. Uh, I mean, yeah, I write it prescriptions every day, but it's not my favorite drug. Um, And some of the progestins are more androgenic and some are less androgenic. Norgestimate is the progestin that is in orthocycline. Um... And uh, it has no androgenic properties. Um, Drospirinone, of course, is in Yaz and Yasmin. uh, No no androgenic properties, but maybe just a little too much progestogenic properties and people get depressed. Um, Because remember that progesterone hits our benzodiazepine receptors and uh, you can have too much of a good thing and start to come down. So anyway, uh, if you're going to use a birth control pill, and you want and you want to help someone with their symptoms, use a, uh, use one that has an ethanol estradiol content of thirty to thirty five micrograms. Please do not use the ten or twenty microgram birth control pills. If you're going to give them estrogen, give them estrogen so we can start to get things better. If and then, please do not use um, a birth control pill with norethindrone or um, norgestrel or levonorgestrel. And those so are those are progestins. Those are progestins with androgenic, big androgenic properties. 
So uh, one of the IUDs has, uh, is impregnated with levonorgestrel. And I'm not sure how I feel about that yet because um, some patients say I gained weight on it. I got hairier and I lost hair. And, um, you know, so anyway, what I would do is avoid um, those if you can. Then I move on to metformin and um, we decide, okay, we can't fix your genes, but what we can do is address the problem of insulin resistance. We can't fix the genes yet. So what metformin tells your tells your body is you don't need this much insulin. You just need a little bit of insulin to get the job done. And that's how metformin works. And um, it will, if you want to have monthly periods, um, it will give you monthly periods. If you want to conceive, many people conceive on that within like two or three months. And then some people say, well, I want to take the pill for this, but I want to take the metformin for my insulin resistance. So it's different for everybody. What about, do you ever use clomiphene or letrozole? I, I saw those were some of the other ones. Those are, I, the reproductive endocrinologists use them. Okay. Yeah, so I don't use those. I see. So it sounds like, and I, I guess you kind of alluded to this earlier, you, you, you'll treat the hyperandrogenism, the hyperinsulinemia, and just by, doing, uh, by treating the hyperinsulinemia or saying some patients seem like they conceive uh, just with that. But if they don't, then you're going to refer those patients to a reproductive endocrinologist or some sort of reproductive specialist, fertility exactly. specialist. Okay. Um, and do you tend to use other androgen blockers like spironolactone? Yes. So some people want everything and some people, you know, they, it, they want to pick and choose. So for those patients, uh, we talk about how spironolactone doesn't lower your testosterone, it blocks your testosterone and it sits on a receptor. And as long as you're on it, um, things will get better. So for example, if you're going to go have electrolysis or laser, and if we don't somehow lower the lower or block the testosterone, uh, it's going to, you're going to waste your money. Often in the textbooks, they'll say, start with 25 milligrams of spironolactone once a day. It's a short-acting drug, and it needs to be given twice a day. Uh, and we don't have a long-acting equivalent yet. You know, I, I explain that it's a very weak blood pressure drug and a weak diuretic, and people almost never have problems with it. I say hydrate while you're on it. While you're on it. And you must not conceive while you're on it because you cannot block testosterone in the fetus. So I'll often start people on 50 twice a day or 100 milligrams twice a day of spironolactone. And the results are variable. Um, and it's like watching grass grow. So you have to wait months and months, but you can, you know, I, I do get good results. How soon, because the I guess these are younger, healthier patients than I'm used to because those doses, you know, if you're, we're, I'm used to seeing this in heart failure patients like CKD and multimorbidity, but in young okay. patients, they tolerate like starting at 50 twice a day and you, and you just check a, a metabolic panel, their potassium, how often later? Never. After, oh. well, after oh. the first thousand times I did and they have normal kidneys and they pee out their potassium, I just, I just gave up. I got like, you. Yeah. Okay. It's impressive. You know, a, a young woman with like a blood pressure of 105 over 75 and they're totally fine on it. It doesn't doesn't affect them. You've noticed? 
Yeah, I mean it's yeah. it's impressive. I might need a thousand are... under my belt before I uh, <laughs> am cavalier. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, they they don't really get much of a blood pressure effect. So okay. Yeah. Any you know? Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I was going to ask if there's any other medications you think uh, our our internist colleagues should be should be using our primary care colleagues should be using for their patients, uh, or that you think would be useful to have in their armamentarium. I don't, there are other drugs to use for PCOS. You know, our colleagues don't need to use them um, because they might not be comfortable with it, but they need to know about it. So um, what I found, uh, I, I found a paper in 1995 in which Italians, oh, troglitazone, Italians gave troglitazone to women with irregular periods and they started to ovulate. So then they decided to use it as a fertility drug. So I said, Hey, that sounds like a good idea. And so um, I used troglitazone that way. Then troglitazone was taken off the market. And then there was uh, rosaglitazone and pioglitazone. And I've used those over the years. Um, They seem to work particularly well as insulin sensitizers in women who are slender. Uh, And then now the only one we have left is pioglitazone. They are underappreciated, amazing drugs, the thiazolidine diodes. Okay. Would you use that in combination with metformin or just as an alternative? Sometimes in combination, um, but usually it's an alternative. Someone can't tolerate metformin mm-hmm. or uh, they're slender and I might just go straight there. And the way I learned was do, using metformin so often on slender women. And, you know, sometimes it works. Um People say, well, why would you do that? They're not insulin resistant. And I say, I don't know. It still works. And there are papers that show that it works. Um, but And then sometimes it just goes straight to the thiazolidine dione. Um, now, um, some of us are using the incretins um, for uh, women with PCOS to improve insulin resistance. Sometimes they conceive on them. Um, that's controversial because we don't have a lot of data on that. So if they can if they conceive while they're on an incretin or a thiazolidine dione, I'll ask them to stop as soon as you know you're pregnant. There is a registry for the thiazolidine dione. That's uh, so so that you can call the the company of the one that you were using and let them know someone got pregnant, just so you know, and you know let you know if anything bad happens. And then we're having great success with the incretins and the weight loss. Yeah, I wonder. How much, how much just for patients who are overweight, who have PCOS, if they're able to lose weight, how much of an effect does that have? Do you find that's useful or is it, is it just tough for them to lose weight without some sort of drug therapy? For these women, um, I would say that most of them can't lose weight without help. But um, what I can't decide is how much of it is lifestyle. Because every once in a while, you get someone in who's like incredibly motivated, and she'll lose so much weight. And then she, her menstrual periods become monthly, you know, and the symptoms start to fade. Uh, Those people are few and far between. So I don't know. I guess my last question would be, for the alopecia, are you using finasteride or using like topical minoxidil or something? Is there, does anything work for that? Or is that just like... um, people have to wear uh, some sort of hairpiece or wig, whatever, whatever. Yeah. So um, uh, if spironolactone is not working, 
I will add finasteride and they're, they're complementary. Um, flutamide is similar to spironolactone and I don't like flutamide as much and haven't seen good results. In addition to spironolactone finasteride, I use uh, oral minoxidil. Haven't had much luck with topical minoxidil. And then there's another medication, bicalutamide, which is used in prostate cancer. It's, again, an androgen blocker, and I've had some good success with that. Okay. I'll have to refer them to you for that uh, cash lab. Yeah, I would. We're getting into some pretty, pretty specialized territory here, but I think, I think at least... Territory. So, yeah, some of this stuff here I think people would probably feel comfortable doing, like probably yeah. prescribing the pill, tr- trying spironolactone, metformin, uh, finasteride, something we use for other things. So I think I think internists would be comfortable using a lot of a lot of these medications and doing a lot of at least the preliminary workup that you've taught us about. Molly, I think we we have to go to take home points. Did you want to ask any yeah. final questions or any any big things we're missing from the script? Yeah, I, I guess one that kind of comes to mind is is sort of thinking about the lifestyle factors, and there's sort of been talk about this epidemic of PCOS, and how much of that do you think is kind of changing in our uh, changes of our diet and just sort of increased um, sugar and insulin resistance and inactivity versus now we're just more aware of it and diagnosing it more. No, I think I think the incidence is truly increasing. Um, it used to be we used to say five or six percent, then ten to twelve percent, and some people now say fifteen to twenty percent in the U.S. So that parallels obesity. So I think what's happening is that the obesity is say we we weigh twenty pounds more today than we did uh, twenty years ago. The same you would be thinner, um, but everybody's just got more weight. And I think what it's doing is unmasking it. That's it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And as an internist or for our listeners, family practice and other primary care, how, how should we think about these patients like after menopause when some of these um, kind of sex hormone issues are not really so in our awareness, kind of what, what do we need to be thinking about with them long-term? Long-term, um, even if the sex hormones are decreasing, um, they still, what hasn't changed is that they're very insulin resistant. And so that they are still at very high risk for type 2 diabetes, and they will have high triglycerides and low HDL um, uh, sooner, and they'll have it worse than women without PCOS, even uh, controlled for weight. Can you give us a couple take-home points for the listeners, and then if there's anything you'd like to plug, you can you can let them know. Okay. Well, one thing that I wasn't um, taught as an internist, um, as a uh, in, during residency, was to ask about menstrual periods. The risks associated with PCOS are so high, like having to have a liver transplant for fatty liver. If we don't catch things early. Um, they are doomed. Um, so I think that we as primary care physicians, I hate using that word, but we um, need to be more aggressive about screening. We need to treat the menstrual period as a vital sign. We need to ask, have you had miscarriages? We need to ask, have you had intercourse and you didn't use contraception and you were surprised that you didn't get pregnant? People say, yeah, all the time. Okay, so functionally they are infertile. We are not doing a good enough job, and that is because of this artificial split between medicine and gynecology. 
And we have to bring gynecology into, um, into primary care. I think it is our absolute responsibility to ask questions about the menstrual period. And anywhere that the audience can reach you, if they have follow-up questions, uh, are you on? Are you on the Twitters? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm at Catherine Sharif uh, at Catherine Sharif. Okay, on Twitter. And we'll put that in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time. This was uh, this oh, was really awesome. You're welcome. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you. Okay. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. <laughs> get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We are committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Two Men Shoe on Facebook. Also, a special thanks to Kate Grant, who will be doing our artwork for this piece, and also to Paul and Stuart, who couldn't be with us tonight. All right. Uh, thank you as well to Stuart for composing our theme music and to Claire Morgan at Notterly for editing our audio. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Wado. And I'm Dr. Molly Hoyblein. All right. Good night. Good night.